Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 3 of Space Tug by Murray Leinster. Read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Space Tug, Chapter 3 Making actual contact with the platform was not a matter for instruments and calculations. It had to be done directly, by hand as it were. Joe watched out the ports and played the controls of the steering jets with a nerve-racked precision. His task was not easy. Before he could return to the point of rendezvous, the blinding sunlight on the platform took on a tinge of red. It was the twilight zone of the satellite's orbit, when for a time the sunlight that reached it was light which had passed through the Earth's atmosphere and been bent by it and colored crimson by the dust in Earth's air. It glowed a fiery red, and the color deepened, and then there was darkness. They were in the earth's shadow. There were stars to be seen, but no sun. The moon was hidden, too. And the earth was a monstrous, incredible, abysmal blackness, which at this first experience of its appearance produced an almost superstitious terror. Formerly it had seemed a distant but sunlit world flecked with white clouds and with sprawling differentiations of color beneath them. Now it did not look like a solid thing at all. It looked like a hole in creation. One could see ten thousand million stars of every imaginable tint and shade. But where the earth should be there seemed a vast nothingness. It looked like an opening to annihilation. It looked like the veritable pit of darkness which is the greatest horror men have ever imagined. And since those in the ship were without weight, it seemed that they were falling into it. Joe knew better, of course, so did the others. But that was the look of things, and that was the feeling. One did not feel in danger of death, but of extinction, which, in cold fact, is very much worse. Lights glowed on the outside of the platform to guide the supply ship to it. There were red and green and blue and harsh white electric bulbs. They were bright and distinct, but the feeling of loneliness above that awful appearance of the pit was appalling. No small child alone at night had ever so desolate a sensation of isolation as the four in the small ship. But Joe painstakingly played the buttons of the steering rocket control board. The ship surged and turned and surged forward again. Mike, at the communicator, said, "'They say slow up, Joe.' 
Joe obeyed, but he was tense. Haney and the chief were at the portholes, looking out. The chief said heavily, "'Fellas, I'm going to admit I never felt so lonesome in my life.' "'I'm glad I've got you fellows with me,' Haney admitted guiltily. "'The job's almost over,' said Joe. The ship's own hull outside the ports glowed suddenly in a light-beam from the platform. The small, brief surges of acceleration which sent the ship on produced tremendous emotional effects. When the platform was only one mile away, Haney switched on the ship's searchlights. They stabbed through the emptiness with absolutely no sign of their existence, until they touched the steel hull of the satellite. Mike said sharply, "'Slow up some more, Joe!' He obeyed again. It would not be a good idea to ram the platform after they had come so far to reach it. They drifted slowly, slowly, slowly toward it. The monstrous pit of darkness, which was the night side of Earth, seemed almost about to engulf the platform. They were a few hundred feet higher than the great metal globe, and the blackness was behind it. They were a quarter of a mile away. The distance diminished. A thin straight line seemed to grow out toward them. There was a small, bulb-like object at its end. It reached out farther than was at all plausible. Nothing so slender should conceivably reach so far without bending of its own weight. But of course it had no weight here. It was a plastic flexible hose with air pressure in it. It groped for the spaceship. The four in the ship held their breaths. There was a loud, metallic clank. Then it was possible to feel the ship being pulled toward the platform by the magnetic grapple. It was a landing line. It was the means by which the ship would be docked in the giant lock which had been built to receive it. As they drew near, they saw the joints of the plating of the platform. They saw rivets. There was the huge, thirty-foot doorway with its valve swung wide. Their searchlight beam glared into it. They saw the metal floor and the bulging plastic sidewalls restrained by nets. They saw the inner lock door. It seemed that men should be visible to welcome them. There were none. The airlock swallowed them. They touched against something solid. There were more clankings. They seemed to crunch against the metal floor, magnetic flooring grapples. Then, in solid contact with the substance of the platform, they heard the sounds of the great outer door swinging shut. They were within the artificial satellite of Earth. It was bright in the lock, and Joe stared out the cabin ports at the quilted sides. There was a hissing of air, and he saw a swirling mist, and then the bulges of the sidewall sagged. The air-pressure gauge was spinning up toward normal sea-level air-pressure. Joe threw the ready lever of the steering rockets to off. "'We're landed!' There was silence. Joe looked about him. The other three looked queer. It would have seemed natural for them to rejoice on arriving at their destination, but somehow they didn't feel that they had. Joe said wryly, "'It seems that we ought to weigh something, now that we've got here. So we feel queer that we don't. Shoes, Mike?' Mike peeled off the magnetic-soled slippers from their place on the cabin wall. He handed them out and opened the door. A biting chill came in. Joe slipped on the shoe-soles with their elastic bands to hold them. He stepped out the door. He didn't land. He floated until he reached the sidewall. 
then he pulled himself down by the netting. Once he touched the floor, his shoes seemed to be sticky. The net and the plastic sidewalls were, of course, the method by which a really large airlock was made practical. When this ship was about to take off again, pumps would not labor for hours to pump the air out. The sidewalls would inflate and closely enclose the ship's hull, and so force the air in the lock back into the ship. Then the ships would work on the air behind the inflated walls, with nets to help them draw the wall stuff back to let the ship go free. The lock would be used with only fifteen minutes for pumping instead of four hours. The door in the back of the lock clanked open. Joe tried to walk toward it. He discovered his astounding clumsiness. To walk in magnetic-soled shoes in weightlessness required a knack. When Joe lifted one foot and tried to swing the other forward, his body tried to pivot. When he lifted his right foot, he had to turn his left slightly inward. His arms tried to float absurdly upward. When he was in motion and essayed to pause, his whole body tended to continue forward with a sedate toppling motion that brought him down flat on his face. He had to put one foot forward to check himself. He seemed to have no sense of balance. When he stood still, his stomach queasy because of weightlessness, he found himself tilting undignifiedly forward or back, or, with equal unpredictability, sideways. He would have to learn an entirely new method of walking. A man came in the lock, and Joe knew who it was. Sanford, the senior scientist of the platform's crew. Joe had seen him often enough on the television screen in the communications room at the shed. Now Sanford looked nerve-wracked, but his eyes were bright and his expression sardonic. "'My compliments,' he said, his voice tight with irony, "'for a splendidly futile job well done.' You've got your cargo invoice?" Joe nodded. Sanford held out his hand. Joe fumbled in his pocket and brought out the yellow sheet. "'I'd like to introduce my crew,' said Joe. "'This is Haney, and 